Life Science Investments. How does that work and why is that important? My name is Chris and I'm working in the life science industry since 2006. Until 2020, I always had problems to <laughs> explain to people what I'm doing because almost nobody was interested in anything that has to do anything with life science early stage investments. But that changed. In January, February, March, Q1 2020, a novel virus appeared on the scene, SARS-CoV-2. And the disease this virus causes is COVID-19. And I'm pretty sure in July 2020, everybody is familiar with this viral threat. And with this viral threat, uh, almost 8 billion people from one day to the other became interested in life science investments. But how does it work? What's necessary to bring a novel scientific idea into a product that at the end of the day becomes a therapeutic medical device or vaccine that helps preventing the spread of SARS-CoV-2 and its disease COVID-19. Most of the time, more than 10 years and almost 2 billion euros per vaccine or therapeutic that hits the market. To give a little bit more insight, I had the idea to gather investors and have an online webinar and chat about life science investments. In this podcast episode, you will hear one of Austria's most famous life science entrepreneurs, Andreas Grassauer, who invented the company Marinomed and got it from a greenfield operation listed on the Austrian stock market. After his keynote speech, you will have the opportunity to listen to the world's best life science investors and learn from them how they handle life science investments. Enjoy the podcast episode and if you want to learn more about investments in life science, join our life science get together network and get updated and informed about anything that's going on in the life science field in this world. Have a great time, stay safe and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Life Science Get Together number 12 today with an online webinar about life science investments. In the last couple of months, I got more and more questions about should I invest in life science? How does it work? I have a novel project against SARS-CoV-2. Where do I get the funding from? The questions, I believe, are mostly driven by the current situation that we see worldwide with uh, the novel coronavirus and its disease, COVID-19. And I thought to myself, uh, how can I do it better instead of answering loads of mails and calls uh, one by one? Is there any option that I can uh, improve the communication? I thought to myself, why not ask the professional in a digital online webinar? record it and publish it on the LSG2G podcast. And so here we are. I'm extremely happy to have Andreas Grassauer as a keynote speaker. He's one of Austria's most experienced life science entrepreneurs and brought a company from a greenfield operation up to the stock market. 
he will have the keynote and uh, tell us a little bit more about his success stories. Afterwards, we have a great panel with the world's most experienced life science investors. Andreas, please start with the keynote and tell us more about your experience in raising funds. Thanks a lot, uh, Christian. And just could you uh, raise a hand that if you, everybody can, if you can hear me? Okay, fine. Thank you. So telling the story and also being uh, part of this uh, uh, community that is developing countermeasures uh, for this uh, SARS coronavirus 2 COVID-19 disease. Uh, I, Christian asked me to share the story about MarinaMed and was uh, back in, in, in 2000, beginning of the 2000s, uh, mid of 2000s, uh, we started to, to crystallize the idea to MarinaMed and at that time we were just through this uh, SARS-1 epidemic that was obviously stopped with around 8,000 patients uh, in the world. And uh, as you just heard that we are listed as a company in the Austrian stock market, I jump over this disclaimer and jump right to the, into that uh, slide, what we, who we are and what uh, MarinaMed is doing. And uh, back in 2005, we've, we found the uh, is the uh, evidence that the polymer from red seaweed uh, certainly is able to bind to certain viruses. Later on, we called that product Carachelose, established a platform uh, with uh, several uh, uh, seed rounds and, uh, and early uh, investment rounds. We brought the company, developed the product, uh, validated it in the, in, in the, in the clinics. And from that on, we, we developed a company, uh, uh, did a big pharma partnership uh, back in 2010 and thought, okay, that's what you want to achieve with a startup. Uh, and then it turned out that uh, not everything uh, is, uh, is done when you have a, uh, a big pharma partnership. And, uh, and certainly you need also a motivated partner that helps you to, to bring the product into the market. That was obviously not the case. Uh, the company went on in a, in a difficult situation and moreover, later on we discovered another platform, uh, did an, uh, another discovery uh, back in 2014-15. In and it was clear that uh, we're gonna, uh, gonna need money, but uh, uh, I'll come to that uh, in a moment. So what we are doing on the one hand, we have this broadband uh, virus blocking polymer. Uh, and if you ask yourself the question, does it work against coronaviruses? Yes, it works against coronaviruses, at least to the known ones, the ones we knew before SARS-CoV-2. We don't have data to the new virus so far, uh, but you can imagine that we were working, uh, working on that and uh, we'll come out with data as soon as we have. And the MarinaSolve platform, which is shown here, is basically a technology that helps to solubilize otherwise insoluble compounds. Uh, and that's really important because there's a couple of uh, insoluble compounds out there. And uh, we solubilized uh, for, for the beginning a, a nasal corticosteroid, uh, uh, brought it through the clinics, uh, did a phase three, pivotal phase three trial. Now we are in the registration 
with that product. All that is done uh, with an asset light business model, practically all expansive uh, step of the uh, of the or uh, capital intensive steps of the pharmaceutical uh, chains are also sourced like production and marketing distribution. Uh, we do the innovation, we develop the product, uh, develop also uh, the clinical pipeline, and of course we hold uh, the patent and the IP. So basically a, a, a life science biotech business model uh, that is done with a, a, a strong and experienced management team. Uh, most of them have either experience in big pharma or or uh, in, in investment banking. I'm the only exception. I was always an entrepreneur, never worked for big pharma. Uh, that's uh, somehow, they also come back to that uh, in a moment. So that's the pipeline you he see here, what we're currently doing. We're uh, developing a, a virus blocking inhalation product. That's a, a, uh, a product that uh, is designed for uh, inhalation in patients with uh, uh, viral respiratory uh, in infections in, of, of the lung. So uh, no, matter, no matter what uh, the cause is, uh, includes, of course it includes uh, SARS-CoV-2 patients, but also includes flu or whatsoever uh, patients. So uh, this is going to be a, a broad band uh, virus blocking product and we, we uh, currently entering a, uh, a, the safety trials for that, and then I'll launch a proof of concept trial later uh, later in, in summer, beginning of autumn. So I jump over from that and uh, come back to the situation uh, back in uh, 2015, where we should talk about financing and not so much uh, about the company. So uh, at that time, we had, uh, after I told you uh, this big pharma partnership, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, difficult to get uh, uh, progress in the company uh, and with an asset deal in, in 2014, we secured the company in a pretty challenging situation. So that's one option of financing. If you have an asset that is not core of your business, you can, uh, you can sell this asset uh, that pretty much helped us. In our case, it was a, a, uh, an, an eye product that we sold to the, the French uh, stock-listed company Nicox, and that gave us the resources uh, uh, to work on. But it was also clear when we want to uh, develop our Marinosol platform, we we're gonna need uh, additional financial resources to to fund those platforms. So we're discussing around uh, separating the companies, uh, get different funds into different companies. Uh, sell off uh, parts or the entire part um, and then decided, okay, we want to continue the entire company because of, uh, of the team. Um, because the success of this Marinosol platform would allow the development of a series of products, not just only one, could be an engine of, of developing new products, uh, doing lifecycle management for uh, existing products or enable other products. And then we, from the management side, there was the commitment to grow the business with the entire company and validate the, the new Marinosol platform. On the other hand, uh, having investors on board since quite some time, uh, our, our seed investor invested uh, back in 2006 
there was a clear request uh, for a roadmap uh, for the company if we continue uh, uh, they want to see what we're going to do where's the direction and of course uh, a continuous question that you will always get uh, during this process is uh, is what is the uh, exit uh, for the investor at the moment when the investor invests you have to consider always uh, the exit for the investor as well because it's at the end of the day they are investors so uh, and here is what uh, uh, we did then uh, back in 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 2015 in in autumn uh, we did an uh, investment round with an austrian growth fund uh, that, that helped us to, to secure the funds to uh, to get the uh, um, Marine Soft platform in progress. And the Invest AG, which is also an Austrian uh, growth fund, uh, helped us to, uh, with additional funds, on the one hand, they helped uh, to leverage the investment of the AWS Mittelstandsfonds. And also uh, they bought out the, the former CFO of the company who had bought the shares of, the, of, of this uh, uh, shareholder. And that pretty much also uh, cleaned up the shareholder basis in, in progress into the direction of the company. So that all, uh, uh, that all lay, led to uh, the uh, conversion into a share company. Uh, we have been a limited company until 2017. And... Uh, and then our uh, investment bank, the Erste Group Bank, uh, came up with the idea uh, to do a convertible bond, at the, which was listed at the Vienna Stock Exchange. And at that time, we had already talks with them. I think the first talk with them was back in 2009. So uh, from time to time, we, we somehow uh, met, uh, initiated discussions whether it's time or not, uh, what is the best uh, financial instrument for the company. And during those early phases, the, the bankers uh, gave us good advices also how to develop the company. Uh, and it's a good thing to listen to them. Uh, and one of the things uh, they told us 2009, okay, guys, it's too early. Uh, you're not ready for the capital markets. Uh, you need to develop the company further. Um, that's what we did then later. And in, in this convertible bond was a, a good training for the management. And the first, the first time you write the prospectus, uh, you, you, you get your reporting duties upgraded. Uh, you get to structure uh, decision processes in the company and so on. And within one and a half year, we after that we were ready for an IPO, and uh, and and uh, in parallel, uh, we worked on the investment with the European Investment Bank, uh, and uh, both together worked in the beginning of 2019 when we did the IPO on the one hand and the the loan from the European Investment Bank altogether. And the the proceeds from the IPO, which was uh, 22.4 million, you doesn't seem too big uh, in an international capital market transaction. But with the loan of the investment bank and the convertible bonds together, uh, which converted at a very good rate for those investors, was uh, 
uh, a, a very very good success for the company and gave us the funds to uh, to uh, uh, to grow the company to that stage where it is today. And um, and the one thing which is also shown here, the IPO is not an exit for investors. The exit, if there is the possibility to do so, comes later on uh, at the IPO. The IPO was an uh, investment event. Uh, also for the, most of the investors uh, invested in the IPO. And only later on in October and, uh, uh, 2019 and in January, they were able to, to uh, exit uh, parts of their investment uh, via accelerated book billing uh, procedures. Uh, and that was approximately 21 million uh, that were uh, changed here. And that pretty much helped also to, to get a little bit more uh, uh, free float of the company and uh, pretty much one and a year after the IPO, uh, all the lock, uh, lockups uh, are gone with the exception of the management. Management has committed itself to uh, to keep the shares at least for three years. That's something uncommon for US investors in Europe. Uh, I'm not aware that somebody did three years. For me, it was not an issue because I won't sell shares anyway. Uh, so uh, it was not a big deal. But the message here is the exit is, the IPO is not the exit. The exit comes afterwards if the company runs well. So uh, better to prepare uh, that the company runs well uh, during the IPO. So what are the key learnings and uh, uh, from all those years and the takeaways for, for, for those listening? First of all, a, a diverse and a committed team is key. So if you have identified gaps early uh, and manage those gaps in the management team, uh, in our case, uh, an early CFO left, uh, he had some shares, you have to manage that. Uh, if this is not managed, uh, you certainly, you will not, uh, uh, you will not get the, the boat going. And, um, and of course, all investment rounds are costly and require management attention. That's true for, for private rounds, that's true for public rounds, and that's true for an IPO, which certainly uh, will, will take practically the entire management uh, uh, attention for quite some time. And, uh, and not only because you have to write the prospectus, why? because you have to deal with lawyers uh, and new rules you haven't been involved before, uh, but you also have to deal uh, with new investors and uh, and you have to understand the needs of these investors. So there is a specific uh, a life science investors, there's generalists, there is others, there's private investors, uh, and you have to understand these needs. If you have an investor in your company who needs an early exit within a year and you have others who don't need this exit, you probably uh run into problems and so aligning the interests of these uh, uh uh investors or of the of these shareholders uh is pretty important because you don't won't only have uh, uh investors as shareholders you'll probably have founders who have different uh interests and aligning those interests uh can can help and in my experience 
the direction that the company goes public uh, was pretty helpful. It's like a carrot. Everybody's running afterwards. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, it aligns the interests of shareholders. That's, uh, and of course, equity capital markets are not a constant. They are not, uh, they will not follow the plan. So there can be a pandemic ruining your uh, uh, your stock plans. There can be a financial crisis or simply a war in the region and the stock market is down and you can't do your IPO. You need to have a plan B, uh, possibly a plan C. Um, in our case, we worked uh, pretty tough uh, with the European Investment Bank and also private investors. So probably if we wouldn't have been doing the IPO uh, at that point in time, probably it would have ended up in a trade sale of the company. And as mentioned earlier, the early talks with the investment banks and the investors will help you. You certainly learn something from that and don't talk only with one, talk with more of them, certainly meet them, uh, or you don't need them to meet every, uh, every three months, but uh, every couple of half a year or a year, why not? Yeah. And, uh, and also you will learn that not all advisors out there will be helpful. That may include myself, that may include others. Uh, uh, be careful. Uh, uh, this is not everybody. Uh, works in the interest of your company. You have to understand the interests and and the reasons why those uh, people are talking to you. Uh, and after having told you all that, uh, your product and your technology is key. Uh, this is the pretty important thing. If this, if you can push this forward and, and this really works, it's going to be incredibly important for 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 your success and the success of the company. And not the location of the stock market. Uh, just share one uh, uh, experience when I was talking with a huge investment fund at the uh, at GP Morgan conference in San Francisco, where one said, okay, you, you guys you simply don't think any minute where you get your company listed. Just think of the investors. Why the reason as an investor, why should I buy your share? and not other share, because I can buy thousands of shares in, in the entire planet. Uh, what is the reason I should buy your share and not the share of another company? And if you cannot answer the question properly, I'm not gonna buy it, no matter whether it, uh, it's listed in, in, on the NASDAQ or, and, and, uh, and, uh, or, or somewhere in Europe. And, and then adds to that, uh, buy and sell uh, those shares and the only reason uh, I buy your share today is because it's going to be has more it's going to have more value tomorrow so uh, otherwise I won't buy and if you cannot explain that story uh, it's going to be difficult and so the story has to be clear and the story must be aligned around your product and your technology otherwise it's it's uh, it's not sustainable and having said that, I I'm gonna handle over to back to Christian uh, and the panelists. Uh, and thank you for your attention. And of course, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, an interesting discussion. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Andreas, for this uh, interesting talk. Uh, we have the opportunity to ask questions also to Andreas. If in the audience anybody has a question, uh, please raise your hands or type the question in the Q&A tool. Um, and one question from my end to you, Andreas, uh, in your opinion, what's uh, the most important advantage for you when you are listed on the stock market with your company? So the most important uh, experience uh, or difference today is that internationally in the global world, it's quite common that tech companies uh, like ours are listed. So we are better recognized uh, in our business uh, with our business partners. Uh, the transparency of doing that business is pretty well perceived. And uh, the reputation you get from that uh, uh, this is the helpful thing for the business. The second uh, thing is it declined the interest of investors. And, and, and for me as a CEO and co-founder, even though the founders and management just uh, only have a 25%, uh, we're pretty much uh, in the lead and can steer where the company. Uh... Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Thank you very much. So let's uh, jump then on the other side of the negotiation table. We have heard now the situation from the entrepreneur side. And now let's uh, see in the panel discussion uh, how the investors tick, what they think, what's important to them, and what's needed to be attractive to an investor. We have the opportunity today to chat with uh, four investors and a representative of the Austrian stock market. And I'm looking forward to this uh, nice and interesting group. Uh, let's start with one of the most unique funds that I've ever heard of. It's uh, a US-based fund. Its name is Revent. And I welcome today Sara Nunez-Garcia from uh, Switzerland. Hello, Sara. Can you please tell us a little bit more about you and your fund? Yes, uh, glad to do that, Chris. And, you know, thank you very much for the invitation. So Revent, um, as you rightly said so is originated in the US about six years ago uh, is actually structured as a company not as a fund and there are reasons for that um, so Vivek Ramaswamy raised in the last six years about three billion at the company level to start investing one of the reasons why Vivek did not want to make this a close to end fund is because of the investment thesis that we have we go in early, usually at the company formation, inception of the company, and we try to go as far as possible with our invested companies. That means possibly profitability. So we're thinking about 10, 15 years from incepting the company. Um, you know, VCs, uh, you know, they have their 10 plus two usually, 
I think for us, you know, for our shareholders was important, not just to see the proof of concept in our companies, but also to push them uh, as far as possible through the commercialization to profitability. So that's why uh, in the beginning, you know, the management team decided to structure Voivend as an open-ended investor fund as opposed to um, a VC uh, closed-end fund. So we are uh, therapeutic area agnostic, modality agnostic. Um, you know, we, in the last six years, we constructed a 21 portfolio you know, company across you know, different you know, therapeutic indications, and we progress those along the way. Um, and again, you know, the idea is always you know, to go all the way. But again, if say the right pharma partner comes along, uh, then you know, we're ready to, to transact. And this is what happened last year. In December last year, um, one of pharma partners approached us and they were interested in acquiring a number of companies in our portfolio. And again, you know, it is pretty public that Voivan takes companies all the way and does, does that usually on its own. So Royvan has raised so much capital that typically we do not syndicate. It's, you know, most of the times Royvan is the only investor in our companies, especially in the beginning, uh, pre-IPO. And obviously as we take the company public, we let other investors in. So even though we have that model and you know, you know, most of the people knew about the model, we were approached by a pharma partner last year, Sumitomo, uh, was interested in acquiring a number of companies, the pre-commercial companies in our portfolio. And we looked at each other and even though we were not looking for uh, an exit for those companies, you know, it, it proved to be the right, acquire the right partner to commercialize the products in those companies. So we ended up transacting. So we sold five portfolio companies for about 3 billion upfront cash to Sumitomo. And now post Sumitomo, we're thinking about what is the next generation of companies that we're gonna build. We're thinking about, again, uh, therapeutic area agnostic. The, the companies we'll be investing in would probably be earlier stage that we have in the past. In the past, we were thinking about validated assets with proof of concept at least or beyond. Um, in this next generation of Voivand, we're probably going to go preclinical stage, early clinical stage with a lot of de-risking to do platform companies. So, so this is what we're thinking as the next generation of companies that we want to build. Thank you very much, Sada. Uh, it's amazing that you ha uh, to have you here today. Uh, let's continue with a brief introduction. Astrid, uh, you are a Noble Fund operating in the blockchain industry and also you are very experienced uh, in the life science industry. Tell us a little bit more about your approach. Yes, so we're, uh, we're Cytel Ventures. Um, we're based in Europe and uh, we invest in blockchain and related technologies because we share the vision of uh, Web3, which means a decentralized, viable, uh, verifiable and more secure internet technology, whereas uh, blockchain is one of its backend uh, technologies to achieve that. Um, I myself, I'm head of research and the managing partner of Cytel Ventures. So it's my job to basically set a strategy on how we screen investment opportunities and how we can best support them after investment. Um, we're a fund that is basically um, looking at mostly ventures that are the pre-seed stage up to series A. Um, in some very rare occasions, we will also look at series B. 
In fund one, we have invested mostly in infrastructure layer projects, but we believe that in the next few years, these will be improved and there's nothing really fundamentally new that will come actually out of that corner. So we're looking now in the future to invest more into application that drives actually uses of these kind of infrastructures. And there we have a number of sectors, one of which is healthcare that we're actually actively looking at. Uh, we don't invest strictly in gaming or gambling or anything in the financial sector like payments because we just think that's actually very boring and overcrowded in any case. And we basically, what I should also say is we're quite agnostic to the kind of instruments that we're um, investing. So it can be equity, it can be convertible node, it can also be a token instrument. We haven't done any security token investment so far. And I'm not quite sure that we will ever do in the foreseeable futures until a few things are solved around that uh, uh, sphere. Um, but we really look at it at the whole package and see like, okay, where is actually the value accruing in a company and where would it make best sense to actually acquire this kind of asset class, so to say, and then uh, serve our investors best with that. Thank you very much, Astrid. Um, I think we should have a separate podcast episode talking about blockchain technology <laughs> and its application in life science. Uh, let's look across the Great Pond into the Boston area. What's going on there? Uh, welcome to our panel, Christopher de Souza. I hope I spell your name correctly. Can you tell us a little bit more about your approach? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Happy to, and thanks for the invitation, Christine. Good to be on this panel of here. Um, so we're Boston-based. Uh, we're a philanthropic uh, venture firm, so that might seem to be a little contradictory. But um, let me explain. So the reason we are philanthropic is, well, the reason we're venture is because we make investments, period. We take an equity stake in a company, and like any other VC or investor, we make an investment, and we're quite active with the company. The reason we're philanthropic is because unlike uh, a venture fund, uh, we have a single LP and that LP is a family foundation out of Paris. And when the, when they sold their business, which happened to be linen and uniform rental, um, they put all the money into a family trust that was dedicated towards advancing medical sciences. They've been funding academic research now, a very prestigious uh, grant called the Transatlantic Networks of Excellence, over 400 million given out in grant money. And while that gets great publications, it doesn't necessarily get to the patients. So thereby was the genesis of Broadview. We come in and we invest early to help companies translate and cross the value of that or you know that that gap over there because everyone wants data but before they give money and you can't get the data unless you have the money so we come in early with about a million per company 
help them get across the value of death and uh, raise their next round. Um, we're also philanthropic because we're very mission-based. So we only invest in cardiovascular, and that includes metabolic type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, stroke, uh, obesity, uh, and as you probably heard from the COVID virus situation, these are all comorbidities uh, that impact other, you know, other aspects of health. So we invest in cardiovascular, metabolic, and stroke. That said, we're agnostic to technology. So we do drugs, we do devices, we do diagnostics, we do regenerative medicine, as long as it's within this space. And the one thing that we look at, the very first thing that we look at is, what is the impact potential? And I don't mean numerical impact, I mean more clinical impact. So we've invested in you know small indications where just a few people, but if we have a therapy over that could have a huge impact on their lives versus, you know, the big heart failure, AFib, these are the very big markets. And so uh, we, we come in, we make the investments. We've been in existence since 2010. Uh, we've made, I believe, 44 or 45 investments to date, a couple of really good exits, uh, obviously a couple of write downs. Um, and we see about 400 plus four, 450 proposals a year, we make three or four investments. So just for all of you entrepreneurs in the audience, uh, you know, this is, uh, I think raising money is very difficult because you have a lot of competition out of that. Um, that said, we are not your traditional fund. So we're not a 10 year fund. We, we just have a budget and the family covers the operating expenses and gives us enough money to make four or five investments a year. But we have been successful. So how do we measure success? Uh, first and foremost, how much money have we leveraged? So for every dollar that we've invested, our portfolio now has raised, uh, I think a little over than $13 for every dollar that we've invested. So we're leveraging a tremendous amount of money. And when we first started, we would just do a million dollar note. Now we have the credibility and sort of being seen as the go-to cardiovascular investor. In fact, there are two instances recently where companies heard that Broadview had endorsed and was getting ready to make an investment and they came in and wanted to take over the entire company. Uh, so, uh, you know, people hear about Broadview's interest, that means you must be pretty good. It's sort of an endorsement because that's all we do cardiovascular. The second uh, return uh, is ROM, not ROI, which is return on mission. Uh, how many patients are our portfolio uh, companies impacting? Of course, that's a much longer term um, metric, uh, but the, uh, the leverage is a much shorter term. And I think our success can be measured by the fact that the family has now put together a $100 million fund uh, called Longview, which will be dedicated. Now, this is strictly ROI. This is strictly financially driven uh, money will be to follow on in investments in Broadview portfolio companies. So because we've seen, we know the companies, we're working with them, we know who's good, we know the teams that are good, the teams we don't want to back any further, but the ones we definitely want to back where there is a good uh, uh, progress that's being made. And broad Longview comes in as a follow on as long as there is a new independent investor coming in with the term sheet. So. Uh, we invest across the US and Europe. We've got several companies in Europe, France, Ireland, Copenhagen, Finland, 
continue to look for most of them. So if you hear of anything in cardiometabolic or stroke, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear about it. But that's who Broadview is. Thank you very much, Christopher, for the introduction. Uh, let's jump back from the United States to Europe. Uh, it's a fund that is based in the Scandinavics, but also in Austria. It's uh, Javier Ventures. Welcome, Walter Stockinger, to our panel discussion. And lately, you have been in the news with a very quick uh, exit. Can you please tell us a little bit more about your fund? Thank you, Christian, for the uh, invitation and for the introduction. Uh, indeed, we are a classic uh, life science VC located in Europe, uh, headquartered in Oslo, uh, but focusing on, on most regions in Europe. Uh, the principle or the, the premise on which Hadian was formed was uh, also very simple. Uh, it was the understanding that there's excellent science being conducted in Europe, yet uh, if you look at the capital markets and the availability of capital for startups, in particular in certain regions of Europe, uh, you, it doesn't compare, it doesn't match up to uh, the United States, for example. And uh, not only is there plenty of opportunity to invest uh, the capital for a life science VC investor, there's also the desire from less sophisticated investors, large pension funds from wealthy individuals uh, and the likes uh, to invest into the space, yet knowing that they cannot make uh, uh, qualified investment decisions. So we need a VC, a specialist VC like us to deploy our money into that uh, industry. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, that's all I can say to Haiti Adventures. Um, Christian, you mentioned uh, an exit that we recently had, it was uh, indeed, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, a company located in Austria, Tennis, I think it's been in the news now, we closed last Friday, um, an excellent team, and I think I don't have to say too much to it, most people are listening to this uh, podcast probably know Tennis very well. Thank you, Walter, for your introduction. We have heard in the keynote a lot about uh, the stock market and IPO, and uh, I'm very happy to have Henriette Lininger today in our panel discussion as a representative of the Austrian stock market. Could you please tell us a little bit about the role a stock market can play for life science entrepreneurs and investors? Hello, everybody. And thank you, Christian, for inviting uh, me to, to your most interesting panel. So maybe I just introduce a little bit the Vienna Stock Exchange, if I, might, if I may. I've been working for the exchange since uh, 2005. And uh, Vienna Stock Exchange is a privately owned exchange owned by its listed uh, companies and Austrian banks. I just would like to add it because this is a very often posted question. Um, we are fully fledged EU regulated stock exchange. And um, I think two things are, are characterizing the Vienna Stock Exchange. First of all, we drive a very broad Central Eastern European network and we are an infrastructure provider for trading to these markets. So we act as a gate to this region as um, we have a, a typical or untypical investor breakdown here in Austria. So investors um, um, trading on Vienna Stock Exchange are mainly um, domiciled in abroad. So um, the US investor base is the number one ranked um, country for uh, international investors in, in Austrian market. And, Austria is number two and the UK is number three. So I just wanted to mention that beforehand. So um, what we can do, what is the role of a stock exchange? First of all, it's supporting 
um, highly efficient trading, transparent trading and posing shares. That's the key function of stock exchange. So it's, it's, it, it applies also to Vienna Stock Exchange. And I guess the, the, the second um, element is more economic one. So uh, as a stock exchange, uh, you uh, support companies for funding. And I would like to say that, I guess, uh, of course, in our opinion, there's no other way uh, of financing where you get three things in that extension. So it's enormous funding if, if, if you need and it's visibility and it's a sort of good structure and, and governance like Andreas Grasauer mentioned beforehand. So um, as a stock exchange, you always contribute uh, to a good um, um, value added chain for, for every country's economy. So I think that's in a nutshell is um, the function of uh, or the role of a stock exchange. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, when we talk about investment processes, I very often perceive the expectations that you send a pitch deck to an investor and within two weeks you have the money on the bank account. Uh, what I'm interested in, and I would like to discuss this also with the other panelists, uh, is, is that really the reality? Does it work that fast so that you only push a deck and the investor is happy to receive it and engages immediately? Sarah, what's, what's your process at Roy Event? How do you handle that? Yeah, thank you for the question. So it doesn't take two weeks. Um, I wish, but and it doesn't take two weeks, I think for the good reasons, for, the, for good valid reasons. First and foremost, we spend a lot of time getting to know the team. If there's a team, you know, sometimes we do pharma spin-offs, so usually there's no team, but I think, you know, it is important whether it's venture, whether it's raw event, uh, people are what makes the business. And I think I have yet to meet any investor that would not do diligence and would not want to have an active role in the company building. Uh, previously, it was at Sofinova, now at raw event. Usually, lead investors go in wanting to build a company, and that means thinking about, you know, what the company has today, where the company wants to go. And you know, when it comes to strategy, there are so many questions that need to be discussed. And we do that pre-investment. You know, pre-investment, we go talk to the company about the team, the asset, additional assets to the company, you know, syndication, you know, globalization, and anything from you know the IP council accounting where the company is located. And the, the details are important for us. And I think we do want to discuss that with the team pre-investment. And many companies that we see want the capital, but are arm's length. And I've never seen that. I mean, I think companies would, in general, what I would encourage companies, you know, fundraising that they, first of all, look inwards and sort of think about what type of investors, what type of capital, there's a lot of capital around, that's, that's undeniable. Um, and VC, and Roy Vant provide a certain type of capital. But I think, you know, when some companies come to Roy Vant, for example, and they ask for, you know, 30, 40, 50 million, but they still want arm's length relationship, that doesn't work. We are pretty hands-on in the company building, pre-investment, post-investment, whether it's Asia presence, US presence, you know, putting more compounds in the pipeline, changing indication, you know, just strengthening management teams. And I think some, teams are pretty naive 
about how much Royvent is involved in that process. And they, and we see, I see it very quickly at the diligence level, if they become very, very picky with the CDAs and sharing information, then I ask the question, are you sure that Royvent is for you? Are you sure that you want venture money? Because there's other types of capital, other types of pools of capital. Are you sure that you want, you share the same ambition that we share? Uh, because not all investors are the same. And if you think about, we do take companies public very often on the Nasdaq exchange. Would we take them public in Europe? Probably not. So we have to have those discussions and those take a long time. So for us, before, you know, between the time that we see an asset, a company to closing, it might take six months, nine months. Now, it is also dependent how easy the company makes it, you know, with us, you know, if they are not really sharing information, um, they're just difficult, then it's a longer process or we might as well stop. Because I think what companies need to realize is that every investor, we have a pipeline of companies that we're looking at for an investment. So a given company is competing with, for capital from other companies that are pitching to the investment committee, you know, at the same time. So, you know, sometimes it's not just convincing one partner, but I have to convince my partners in New York and, and in Europe. So it is a long process because sometimes internally people don't see the company the same way as, as I would do. And it takes, takes time to convince them internally. But again, I would probably spend the most time not on doing diligence on the, on the compound. That is pretty straightforward. Most of the companies that I look at are early. So they don't have a lot of data. So I don't spend most of my time there. There's always one more experiment they could do. There's always you know, something else they could have done. Fine, I mean, I'm happy with taking risks. This is what we do for a living. I think what I spend most of my time in why it takes so long to close deals is aligning. You know, as Andrea said before in the opening, aligning and being coherent. You know, how do you want to build your company? Is this the way we see you know, because this is going to be a long road. We're not in for four years, five years. We're, you know, in the long road to profitability, possibly. But if you don't want to be the CEO for the long run, if you, you know, some of the companies say, I only want to be the CEO for two years. I want to take the company public and I leave. So for, for me and for the team, you know, most of the time is spent on really understanding the intention, the ambition, the purpose and how we would build it together. And, and I see that many teams want to, you know, get over those discussions and just put the money in. And it doesn't do any favor because, you know, maybe we can do an investment faster, but we're going to have the discussions later. And it's better to have them before the investment than after the investment. It's better to discuss whether the existing management team, it is going to be the management team before investment than after investment. So that's a little bit how we structure investment investment decisions. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders Drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast.
Thank you very much, Sara. Uh, Astrid, one question to you in regard uh, to investments. Let's stretch the question initially a little bit. Uh, ICOs, I think, is the right term. I have to admit, I really don't understand blockchain entirely mm -hmm. up to now. Uh, can you speed up the process with blockchain or Bitcoin for investments? How does it work? Yeah, no, I mean, I think ICOs are, I can safely say, pretty much over. So I wouldn't recommend anyone who is trying to conduct an ICO these days to actually go for that. Um, yes, you can raise a lot of capital uh, by going into private rounds. And then you have to be careful and investors who are working in the space are looking very carefully if you are really working alongside of a utility token or if it could be classified as a security and is actually in the class of a security token. Because that also is um, on a regulatory kind of point, a very important distinction. And uh, we have seen many cases where people have uh, done this in the wrong way and are facing now uh, multi billion dollar, uh, lawsuits um, because the SEC in the US has suddenly classified them as a security. So it's very important to engage very early in this process. We have also seen that this is actually a space that is super indisciplinary. So it's not enough to just be a startup crowd and super technical. So like we're going to build the next kind of thing. Um, you really need to be careful about your business model. How do you actually create value in your token? What is the token engineering behind it? What is your whole cryptocurrency economy, so to say, behind it? What are the identifiers there? And we have also seen that actually, one shouldn't forget this, another term for token is also digital asset. So this means it is a sort of asset class. And this means you actually need a lot of asset management experience for that as well. So you can already see that building up a very successful team or if you marginally successful team in this space requires a lot of technical expertise from uh, different kind of areas and you can't, it's easy to get it wrong. Um, so my advice would also be for anyone, you know, who is now, for example, in the healthcare space or another kind of space and works in what I call the web two ecosystem. So being built on traditional technology is to first have a really good uh, understanding of what level of uh, technology do I really need? Is it something that I really need to build from scratch? Because this is something that investors will look for today. There are a lot of platforms already. There are a lot of technology that you could use off the shelf, so to say. And there's no need to build another blockchain yourself because you need to consider as a, the token engineering aspect, the governance aspect. So how do you actually go about these kind of things? How do you make it secure? And there's no point in just trying to promise in a white paper, oh, I'm going to have the next, I don't know, whatever, uh, next Ethereum or next Bitcoin or Polkadot or whatever, if uh, you, you can't really deliver on it. So um, there is something about it that this is a bleeding edge technology um, area. And it is, if you're not quite, um, let's say, uh, aware of how much it actually needs to get something like this to the market or even marginally useful, it's really best to keep your hands off it. Thank you, Astrid. Uh, Christoph, I would like to build on your uh, uh, introduction. You mentioned that your fund is philanthropic and I would like to pick up also the question from, from David Wurm. Uh, is there a list of documents, infos that DVC generally wants to have? How does it work with a philanthropic investor? You're just a nice guy with the money who is throwing the money around or do you have expectations and processes running? 
Oh no, we're very nice, and we we can we can transfer money in twenty four hours. That's not a problem. The, the The challenge, however, is getting to that transfer and and all the paperwork that that goes towards getting the transfer approved. No, I mean we look. I mean, is there a set of slides? Uh, I we see all sorts of slides, but the one that I would say do not do is spend 20 slides talking about the market and how much people sold their companies in the past because past acquisitions are no indication of future deal value. Uh, but talk about how you're going to really affect the patient. Who are these patients? And what is your technology? I've seen slide decks that are 25 slides of all sorts of stuff, and then one slide on what the technology is all about, right? So, you know, I think most VCs sort of know the space that they're working and they get it really quickly. And so, you know, an introductory slide about a deck, about 15 slides. Who are you? Who's your team? Very important, right? We, we bought, a, you can have very good technology, but if it's not the right team, it's not going anywhere. Who are your advisors? I think that talks a lot about who you are, who you're networked into, who's advising you. Uh, what's your technology? What's your development plan? How much you're raising and what that money is, what milestone that money is going to take you to. That's really the, the key uh, you know, set of data that we need. Because understand, we've been doing this for 10 years, 12, 11 years now. We know the entire competitive landscape better than any company does because we've seen everything that's out of there, what's public and what's not public. Uh, we know who you're competing with and how you're going to be competing with them. And, and so, you know, we don't need to be educated on the cardiovascular aspect of it, but we do need to understand the technology. The process is pretty simple. We have a two-step process. We have our advisory board meeting three times a year. At least that, that's how it was before COVID. We're sort of in transition now. That's when we take three companies to the advisory board. This is a clinical scientific board. So it's really the the combination of or the end of uh, clinical and scientific diligence. And once they get past that, then we go into the financial diligence. We look at the budgets, et cetera. And then it just depends because now we are happy to, we, if you twist our arm a little bit, we will be happy to lead around. So if you need 5 million to get to the real milestone, well, let's go raise 5 million. And then it just depends upon how long it takes to raise that 5 million and you know how quickly we can do it. We've done it and as I said, one company came in uh, when they heard we were, we were gonna make an investment and decided to take the entire round and put a term sheet on the table. And so that closed in two weeks, but most often time it takes a couple of months and if, if we're successful. But I think the key, and you know, I think Sarah hit it on the head. I mean, the technology is great, but we also look at the team. Uh, you know, we look at the development plan. Remember, we're early stage investors, so even though you know it might be really, really interesting science, make huge impact on patients, but their next round they have to raise fifty million in cardiovascular. Highly unlikely that that's going to happen. So you know, we we probably wouldn't invest over there. So we're looking at various components, you know, how much they need to get to a milestone, who's, what is the probability of someone coming in after that milestone to take it forward? Uh, you know, what are your sort of exits? And, you know, if it's only pharma, is that a good idea? Because relying on pharma is probably not the best business plan on the market today. But having an IPO is, is a good way because now you have an option. Uh, we're looking at a company, one of our companies looking at going IPO. Highly unlikely we'll go, but 
but it's an option. And so, you know, if pharma comes in and says, we want to do a partnership, we can still do a partnership. We can still raise, but having that IPO as a goal and exitable goal, I think is a good uh, um, disciplined approach for the, for the team to go after. So we're not different, even though we're philanthropic, we're not different from other investors. We do a lot of diligence. We talk to a lot of KOLs, as you can imagine, we, you know, we can pick up the phone and call any cardiologist today. Uh, and then the team itself knows a lot about what's out of there in cardiovascular. So for me, that's really the strength of Broadview because we're very focused. We know exactly what's going on in the field. Thank you very much, Christopher. Walter, one question to you. We heard a lot about IPO partnerships with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, what's your opinion as Halian Ventures? Is it an either or decision to whether list a company on the stock market or sell it to a pharma company or is it a combination? How do you handle that at uh, Halian Ventures when it comes to exit? Yeah, I Christian, I, I, I have to make sure I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here, but I, I quoting somebody else, maybe that gets me out of that uh, situation. Somebody uh, who taught me venture capital and is that real VCs uh, make M&As. Uh, the reason for that being, uh, like Andreas already said earlier, uh, rarely an IPO is an exit. Uh, an IPO typically is a way to attract money but at the same time, put the co company in a situation where the access to money will be limited in the future. Um, and uh, that can be seen very well on a number of companies in Sweden or Nordic First, which uh, maybe I can uh, say a few words later on. In principle, what investors need from a, a stock market, uh, what professional investors need uh, from a stock market uh, to be... A, a sensible and reasonable way forward is liquidity. Liquidity during the IPO and liquidity afterwards uh, to being able to um, sell the shares that you own of the company that you IPO'd. Because Andreas said it earlier, for us, we are not, for most venture capital investors, most professional fund investors have closed end funds. They need to return uh, the capital that they are managing at some point uh, to the people they got the capital from. Hence, uh, they have a strong interest of selling their shares at some point. Uh, obviously, they don't want to destroy the value of the company by doing so. Uh, and for that, they need a really liquid market. And uh, if you look at the European environment, I've just, you know, some of the numbers that I'm going to give you are my estimates, some of them are actual numbers. Uh, how many biotech IPOs have there happened in Europe? over the last couple of years. Um, I think somebody who knows the London AIM market very well said uh, Shield Therapeutic was the last biotech IPO in a long time. That was uh, 2016. Um, Euronext, uh, I think has two or three, said two or three IPOs in biotech this year. Uh, Austria, I think had two biotech IPOs in 20 years. Now, if you look at the United States at NASDAQ, they had 75 in 2019 alone. Uh, and you see the numbers, uh, even if you compare by, by, if you adjust to the size of the country, it doesn't even compare. You do have the liquidity in the United States. And I think for the stock exchanges in Europe um, to, to be a competitive as a route for IPO, as a route for, um, as an interesting route for attracting capital into a startup, um, then 
they really need to look into how to work together, uh, how to build an environment where professional investors, hedge funds, biotech hedge funds become um, viable to invest on such a stock exchange. Only at that point, I think European stock exchange will be a go-to, a first go-to choice for professional investors like us. Thank you, Walter, for your points. Uh, Henriette, one question uh, to you as a representative of the Austrian stock market. Uh, what's your opinion? Why should the company float on the stock exchange? Christian, now I have a little, I have a problem because I would like to answer on the last statement. So should I do that before or? Sure, go, go ahead, go ahead, answer it. <laughs> okay, because Walter, I'm sure, I'm, I mean, it's clear. I have to take this point now. <laughs> I mean, what we do, to be honest, as a stock exchange, uh, we, we also, of course, we, we know what's going on on the biotech or life science sector when it comes to an IPO. And um, what we did is um, we had a closer look on all the uh, listings um, in Europe and the cross-border listings on NASDAQ. So because that's, that's the basis we have to compare. And um, um, I mean, this 2019, you're totally right. Um, there, are, there went three... You, bigger European um, biotechs uh, on NASDAQ. And um, they're doing quite well there in sense of performance and in sense of trading liquidity. But um, when you have a closer look on all the other cross-border listings, and we also had two Austrian uh, companies uh, relocated to uh, or moved to, to, to the US and listed on, on NASDAQ, that's not such a success story like, for example, Marino did in Austria. And this is also true for all the others. So about 75 to 80% of all the cross European cross-border listings on NASDAQ are not having this great performance like BioNTech has or Centrogene or whatsoever. And um, that's the first thing. And when it comes to liquidity, to trading liquidity, we also have a closer look on that. And um, if you see the figures on NASDAQ, it, you have always to compare the same basis. The liquidity on NASDAQ is counted by every, every trading venue around the US. If you do that uh, on Europe, you don't do that. You just uh, count one stock exchange and the other stock exchange. But if you would um, add this, um, it's the minimum, the same liquidity you can get in, in, in Europe because here also companies are listed on the stock market and on different other trading venues um, additional, like, like, in, like, on, 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 like in the US. So um, this is just something, so if, if, if somebody wants to have, have a sort of an analysis, we are happy to do that. Um, we, so that, that's one of our top. So please come and, 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 and um, just drop me an email. We would like to do that. Um, so that was the first statement, uh, Christian. <laughs> uh, what, what was your question, by the way? I forget, sorry. Uh, the, que the question was uh, maybe in addition, uh, what, why should, in your opinion, a company float on the stock exchange? What's, uh, what are the pros and cons that you can uh, give a company? I think um, I just summarize uh, uh, um, the statements of, of my co-panelists. And I think, first of all, it's funding. If you don't have a funding need, you just uh, get your shares traded. Why should they get traded? Because investors want to have a valuation, a daily valuation, want to be traded. And 
for this use case, we implemented a new market segment uh, in 2019, uh, which is an easy, easy market uh, and, and a very low budget um, um, capital market um, access for, for younger companies. It, it is called direct market, uh, direct market plus. So, um, so you, you, you want to raise money, you want to exit money because investors want to have an exit. Um, in, so it's quite a, quite a big number in Austria uh, of, of Austrian listings are um, venture capital exits or private equity exits, partial or full exits, depending. So we, are, um, we, we have the function of also an exit path for, for investors, for life science or non-life science. I mean, it is one, one industry, a special industry, but, but when it comes to stock exchange, it's more or less, more or less the same. And um, so if you do that, you, if, you go, if, if, you, if you go public, you are in the limelight of, of, of the public. You have new um, intermediaries like the analysts, the investment banks, the investors. And uh, some of our younger companies also told us that it's great to be in the stock exchange. I get so much awareness I never had before and they never expected. And what they do is they, they, they get a better network of business um, of business partner as as well of of better or of well knowledge um, supervisory um, board members things like that so I think the uh, um, the transparency for us it's a pro the and it's a con so if you don't want to be transparent if you don't want to be in the limelight if you don't want to have regulated reporting if you don't want to have I4S if you're in the segment for IFRS, then um, you should not do that. IPO is not a, a, an instrument for every, for every company. So I think that's, that, that, that's clear. It must, have, it, it must be a fit. And, and uh, on top, what I like most is you can participate your employers uh, on your company's success. So this is, and if you want to have a new currency in regards of taking over companies, so we have an acquisition currency defined by uh, having shares public listed. Yeah. Thank you very much. I would like to pick up a question from the audience. It's from Maria Lamotke, Picol uh, Limited Company in Munich. Uh, the investor is bringing in funds into the company. What else can the investor offer to the company to support it? Is it connections or is it really only money? I would, ask, I would like to ask uh, this question to the entire panel. Uh, who would like to pick it up? Christopher, yeah. go ahead. So I, I would say that um, our team spends over 60% of their time working with the company, the value that we bring. As you said, as I said, Oli, we know the cardiovascular space really well. Uh, so we know what's the best way and help the company develop uh, their program. We can connect them to key opinion leaders, which we're doing all the time, as well as then helping build syndicates because we now know a lot of investors and a lot of investors know us. And, and we have this reputation as being the go-to cardiovascular company. So um, if you're, in fact, I would flip it the other way around and say, if you're looking only for money, probably Broadview is not your best uh, uh, investor, but if you're looking for a partner that will bring in funds, help build the company, take you down the right path. It's never a straight line. There's always ups and downs uh, to help you navigate that. You know, right now I've had to step in and 
and uh, negotiate a license with the university uh, because the team couldn't get it done. Uh, so we, yeah, I think money is really maybe 30% of our input into a company. Thank you very much. Uh, Sara, you had also, I think, something to add. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. I think no, I, I concur with uh, you know, what Christopher you know, said. If you just want capital, there's probably other you know, pots of capital that are lower in, in cost. Um, I'd say, you know, Royven and, and other investors, it's the perspective. You know, we're typically invested in many companies. We've seen, you know, we have the pulse on what's going on on the ground with many, many companies, the failures. I mean, the fact that we've built many companies, some of them have crashed, you know, gone into the wall. Some of them have been successful. So the experience of many years having seen many, many companies from idea be invested, divested, maybe burned on the ground, and the network and you know the, the ability to call a KOL, a payer, uh, you know somebody has you know sold a number of companies and have them on speed dial and say okay talk to my management team and you have pretty privileged access to our network. Now this said, I think, and I have seen it with some companies. Some companies don't want this, which is which is intriguing. Um, some companies just want the capital, and it's not that it's not that they don't want it, but I don't think the trust has built enough to to take the the suggestion. Just an example: IP IP lawyers. Many of the companies that we see, the early stage companies, come with you know IP councils that they have done good work, but I think we need to elevate the company you know and sophisticate the company a little bit more and we come with suggestions could be accounting ip could be anything and we say listen we've worked with this lawyer because they have know-how in small molecule or antibody or oncolytic virus these are the best and you'd be surprised how many companies just don't want the suggestion or the advice and i feel that some of them think that if they take your network, your suggestions, then you're taking over the whole company. Or, and that's not the intention. The intention is to communicate to you what has worked for us and what hasn't worked for us. Because there's some IP lawyers or whatever it is, or bankers, when you want to take the company public, that or cross all investors, you know, a good example is investors. There's investors that at least I don't have a good experience with. Um, that doesn't say that I wouldn't work with them, but I like to communicate that to potential companies because if you raise you know, capital from those companies, they may not behave like they say they behave. So you know, they might dump your stock the next day um, after the lockup. So again, it's communicating the experience, but again, many of the companies that I see, it feels like they don't want it. And that's why when I'm doing diligence on a company and I come with suggestions, what about that person for the board, advisory board, globalizing the company, putting on the map, equity story. And I feel like nothing's going in. I question, are, are we the right match? Because this is the value that we provide. It's not capital. It's, it's you know, I think as Christopher says, the 70%, which is not capital, that's the value that we provide. Thank you very much, Sara. Baita. Yeah, so, um... Startups, especially in the healthcare space, need lots of specialist know-how. And um, rest assured, the investor you take on board is not going to know the field of science better than you do. 
is not going to know the technology better than you do, is not going to be a regulatory specialist, most likely not a clinical specialist. In none of these fields, uh, the investor is ultimately the person with the largest know-how. But what they do have experiences in is through what a company, what the stages a company has to go through and the and the um, important elements a company has to achieve to make the next step. And there is nobody else out there than startup investors who has that much experience because they have seen this in many, many different companies. So as Sarah said, it, uh, said just now, you know, they, they, uh, I, I can only recommend that um, anybody who is taking on the venture capital investor um, listens to the advice, considers it, and, and bears in mind that investors like us, and I can tell you a uh, conversation around our investment team, an investor like us does not like to spend time with the company. Ideally, um, you know, a company runs by itself. So uh, very often in the last couple of months, we have said we cannot invest into this company because it feels at this point that we have to invest too much time into this one, not another one like that. So. Uh, investors who get involved, they do this because they really think they, that involvement increases the chance that the company will be a success, which ultimately should be in the interest of all the shareholders, and in particular of the founders who mostly have a large stake in the company. Thank you very much, Walter. We got a lot of uh, blockchain-related questions, and I would like to pick one up from Irene Fielke, she runs INITS and Health Hub Vienna. It's a Vienna-based acceleration and incubation program. We should have a look at it later after the panel discussion. And maybe I start uh, with Astrid um, to also uh, get these questions answers, answered. Uh, the question is, do you see a direct relation between value created by a token versus token price in health in particular? Mm -hmm. Um, thanks for the question, Irene. So um, I think the issue is at the moment, so what people really have to consider is that the whole blockchain, token engineering and token economy fields are very young fields. So this means that a lot of things have still to be figured out and how you actually set up a token ecosystem where you will have a direct link between value creation of an application or an infrastructure versus your token price. So what we have seen so far is, for example, if you look at Bitcoin, and Bitcoin has no inherent value if you look at it. So it is, yeah, is one of the more better known maybe blockchains out there. Um, some people coin it the you know digital gold or stuff, but it actually has no real value. No one will, for example, wait for a block confirmation time of 40 minutes um, just when he wants to pay with a credit card. So this is actually quite useless. So it is just. Um, a kind of function over time that people have heard about it lots and there you go you have some sort of value in there. I think this will change now over time so I think that this field is also maturing and is professionalizing and as I managed before it has become to realize that um, experience in asset management so also if you put a token on an exchange and uh, that you have to consider things like market making, so providing liquidity for uh, uh, such a token, that you will see that um, over time, there will be now more and more cases where people can actually really put a sensible price or a price that will actually reflect the value of uh, a blockchain behind it. But 
it is something where um, there are just a few opportunities out there at the moment that really do that. And a lot of it is just pure speculation. So that's at least um, the kind of uh, view that we have on that. Thank you very much, uh, Astrid. I would like uh, to pick up another question from Sada Inkinen. How could tech transfer professional in research organizations support and guide early startups, early stage startups that are in the pre-seed phase in order for the startups to have the best starting point for raising investments later on? What are the expectations of uh, investors? What should be prepared? This is for me? Uh, Sarah, go ahead if you would like to start. Ah, <laughs> it's, it's for the entire panel. Ah, it's, oh, please, please, go ahead. Who would like to, Sarah, just start? <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, I can be very brief. Yeah. And they, they play a huge, a huge role in, uh, in translating science into, into companies, into compounds that can treat patients. I think there has been a change in the last 10 years, but there's some countries that are still lagging behind. CTUs don't have the right incentives to actually translate anything. And I, you know, and again, I will not name countries, not to be controversial, but I think we have to do more. And I think they, I mean, just, just an anecdote, I've been hung up on the phone a couple of times, you know, by just professors that with the TTO next to them, they just don't accept the questions or the diligence. And you wonder, they've never talked to an investor, okay, fine. But the TTO has a big role in educating, you know, what that process of talking to an investor, to, you know, to making a company together, to, to driving the compound to the clinic, what that would look like. And I feel like sometimes I'm going into these calls with a negativity, investors are, especially in Europe, investors are, you know, they want to take control and they're going to ruin everything. I'm going to keep 90% of the company forever. And I feel like that is not the reality. And the TTOs should screen, educate, you know, pre-discussion pre what is working with venture. And I think we spend a lot of time going to universities and TTOs. You'd be surprised. Sometimes I get on the phone with a professor and I feel that the intention is to do something together. I present to an event and it's just a war. And you feel like, you know, we don't have to talk, but I think if, if you are going, coming to us, there must be sort of an understanding of what is it working with venture, with investors. And I feel that they play a huge role with negotiating licenses the same. You know, some of these agreements, they come redlined and it's, pretty much obscene, you know, what they want. They want the capital and the arm's length and, and, you know, don't bother us, no governance, no board meetings. And like, you know, and, and some of them actually quite sophisticated, but they bend over backwards, you know, to please the professor and that cannot be. Um, so again, it's finding that way of working together. I think they play a huge role and I think some countries have stepped it up so much and then they're starting to see the, uh, the results very positively. Uh, but again, I mean, I mean, this was meant to be a positive note, but I'd like to hear my co-panelist views. Yeah, if I can add to that, just because, I mean, I, my background was in technology transfer before, and I think I totally agree with Sarah that it really depends a little bit on the country. And there are some countries that are actually already very well experienced and have had exposure to many technology transfer projects, and some are really just at the beginning, one can say. And um, I think what also 
especially the younger tech transfer offices need to see is sort of, okay, what are terms that an investor can actually really live with? So if you see, for example, IP agreements in medical technologies with 20, 30% royalty rates, you will say like, well, there's no way you can ever bring this to market because you suddenly have to increase the margin by so much that it's totally unreasonable. So who would ever invest in something like that if that's already something that starts off? Um, so there is a lot of, you know, in the legal details where uh, technology transfer offices can get it wrong and already kill off a project very early on. And especially if you're not open to discussing these points also in connection with investors. Um, but it's also, I think, uh, depending on what kind of support you give them. So, for example, for us at Oxford University, we've been actually very, very helpful in trying to put in, you know, first pitches, really revise the business plans over and over again. So actually the teams were actually really well set up. It was always also a principle of ours to say, okay, the founders, the scientists actually need to sort of um, do their own work or homework behind it as well, because there's no way if you want to push it for the scientists, even if you recognize this is a really great, you know, life-changing technology, if the scientific team is sort of not even, you know, available on call, and if you're then, you know, trying to get first meetings with investors that wouldn't be even able, uh, happy to pitch alongside your CEO or be later on involved in an advisor role. So I think um, there are many pieces of a puzzle that need to actually come together. Um, but I think one very successful story that people actually can look at is, for example, Night Star Therapeutics of Oxford mm -hmm. University, where it has been incredible that in a number of few years, this was actually spun out of the university, turned in a very young venture, IPO'd within a matter of like three, five years, and then actually got even acquired by a big pharmaceutical company. This is an exceptional case, for example, but it is something I think that people, is, uh, it's worth aspiring to and try to take actually you know, best practices from these kind of success stories. Thank you very much, Astrid. Uh, Walter, do you have uh, something to add? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think we all have to learn, right? Uh, life science we see in Europe is probably not older than 20 years with very few exceptions. Um, I think um, if you want me to analyze it, the reason why sometimes um, life science investors, professional life science investors and TTOs are not fully aligned is probably because they don't have the, the same strategic objectives. Um, the, the structure of a, T, of a TTO is built to achieve something and hopefully it is really designed to achieve that goal. And if that's not the same, like, you know, spin, spinning out something, right? Um, then, then, you know, it will not match well with a life science VC investor who is not interested in uh, probably, you know, um, in, in a structure that is more designed towards licensing to a big uh, pharmaceutical company. So, uh, in, in short, I think, you know, like, like any other company, like any other institution, a TTO needs to look at uh, what am I trying to achieve and um, looking for best practices out there for the best in their field. What do they do to achieve that? And I just think historically I've experienced that, you know, the one, you know, uh, occurrence where I can say I really felt like the TTO was not incentivized to do the same thing we are trying to achieve. Uh, is where the TTO was actually more like a patent office for the university uh, rather than, you know, an institution that helps, pro, you know, science that comes out of the university to, to be spun out into, into, into startups. But just a different, it was just a different 
objective of the institutions. And if that's the case, then of course these institutions will not uh, will not work well together. And and of course, like every other institution, as I said before, you know, we should look at you know who does it best and and learn from those. Yeah, this is not a country by country issue, right? We have this across the country here in the U.S. too. And what I would simply say to keep keep this short and sweet, the role of the TTO of, uh, is to be the translator. Uh, having been a scientist, you know, we scientists speak in a very different language than investors do. And the TTO's role is to translate between the two parties to understand what the the faculty member is providing. Is it translatable, et cetera? And then to see if that can translate into the needs of the investor community and find some common ground of that. And I, and I think if a TTO does that well and understands that this has to be a symbiotic relationship, not a parasitic relationship, which is how a lot of TTOs uh, uh, approach this uh it's not going to work so if you want to be a good tto be a translator thank you very much tto is a good point early stage investments and then the end over to the vcs in the last years there was a lot of innovation on the market token is one thing but there's another one it's called crowdfunding uh like cedars it's a question raised by an attendee and uh it's by bikram Pandey. And how do investors with life science VCs view uh, crowdfunding suitable for life science? Malta, go ahead. So I'm not sure if the, um, so I, I read the question in the chat, right? <laughs> I felt like the question was like, how, do, how can I make money uh, using Cedars? <laughs> I guess this was uh, uh, probably Pikram's um, interest here. And, uh, you know, I, I can only say, I recommend nobody to privately invest in life science um, unless that person does have experience in doing so. It is a highly complicated, highly regulated market and one can be very easily drawn into a, uh, an idea that, you know, without the, your knowledge has been tried 25 times before or for whatever illogical reason is not going to work or a presumably logical reason is not going to work that you that you do not understand so my recommendation is you know um unless you want to do good deeds to people that you know well and that you trust and you have a personal relationship um you most likely you know in the terms of of um of uh, investment theory you most likely have less alpha than the professional investors in the area Thank you, Walter. Sada, would you like to add something? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I don't know why somebody, you know, the mom and pop would want to invest in a, in a very risky binary asset class. I think if you want to, you can have a very good return, uh, pretty steady in other asset classes. Um, you know, you can. So unless, again, unless you have a relationship with a company, um, I wouldn't recommend it. From an investor standpoint, we want to have simplified, simple, straightforward cap tables. You know, I do not like to see, and, and again, you know, if, I think you can bundle them sometimes in a, in a one vehicle, but I think as an investor, I like to have people in the company, shareholders that understand, that align, 
uh, on the vision and the ambition and the exit, potential exit of the company. Um, sometimes if you have over 200 investors, it's, you are, are behaving like a semi-public entity. So again, I don't like it. I've invested in one um, and it wasn't really crowded, but it was like a lot of friends in the company. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Because again, you know, people don't understand the business, they don't have the time, they don't read the documents, they don't sign in time. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. So again, you know, I like to have a simplified cap table and board as possible. Thank you, Sara. One question to Henriette. Henriette, how do you see such noble instruments uh, like uh, crowdfunding, uh, tokens? How helpful are they for investors in the opinion of the stock exchange? Um, you know, we, in fact, we like every financing possibilities pre-IPO <laughs> whatsoever and um, um, also the crowd. So with our direct network, we implemented a sort of um, network for funding partners helping us with smaller companies. We have so many companies showing up um, sending their pitch decks if they have one so that, that, that that's one one answer to the previous question sometimes they don't know what what is a pitch deck and um, and they are far away from any ipo um process or only listing process or yeah so what we do then is we have a network of of vcs of crowds crowdfunding platforms of business interests whatsoever and we handle them over to them so um, and uh, to, to, to answer your question or to answer the question, um, it's, it, it's a very important um, source. So every financing possibility for entrepreneurs is an important source. And so we like that, of course, we like that. And um, the second one was the token issue, I guess, right? Because I yes, can't see the yes, question. Yes. Yes, uh, the question was, uh, how do you as a stock exchange view uh, token, token investments? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I think uh, Astrid already mentioned, this is a new asset class. It's a digital, it's digital asset. Um, we, as a stock, from a stock exchange perspective, we monitor um, these developments closely. Um, when it comes to technology, Vienna Stock Exchange, we will not be the innovator of some new technologies, but we will be a very smart follower um, if it comes up on the market. Um, and um, so there are some regulations still missing to get a real securitization of securitized tokens. Uh, but uh, from a real personal um, perspective, you know, to make investments possible to a crowd via an IPO, via crowdfunding, via whatsoever, understandable. And I, I totally understand that, that life science and biotech especially is a binary um, um, industry. But uh, if it, it's, it's hopefully not in every case the, the, the same, but I think it's a highly democratic um, process. Why should not we let people uh, beside big investors, at least when they are mature enough, do invest and participate in one of the most 
crucial industries we, we will see in the next decades. So that's it. <laughs> that was my answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we are coming to the end of the panel discussion and I would like to ask uh, one final uh, question to the panelists. Uh, when you can give only one advice to life science entrepreneurs, how they can improve, the, uh, how they approach the investors, what advice would that be? So if I can say something to that, because I think it ties also nicely into the discussion that we had previously is also to do actually due diligence on your investor as well. So it's not just that, you know, providing all these lovely materials and all that and trying to get some money out of investors, but really check out the investor, make sure that it's a real good fit, that you can get actually some kind of good connection out of this. And also ask for introductions to portfolio companies. Ask how you know this investor has approached um, other um, you know investments before. So I think that is also something that is very crucial and should be taken into account when you approach a VC. Because on the one hand, it will give you the answer: Is this VC really for me? Um, but it will also give you some kind of comfort level in saying like, okay, this is really a helpful investor, and it's not just another name that you add to some sort of list, like is often the case with advisory reports. To be honest. Um, so make real use of um, the network technologies that we have today. Thank you, Astrid. Uh, Walter, what is your advice? Assume that the investor is on your side. Uh, in, assuming from my end here that uh, what the uh, founder wants is to uh, create value. So if you want to create value for yourself, if that is your ultimate objective, I think you can assume that uh, an investor is going to be on your side, not at the other side. Thank you, Sarah. I think, you know, Astrid and Walter have summarized very well. Um, I think for me, it's just before you reach out to any type of capital to define with your team, what is it that you really want? You know, how do you want to build the company, the team, the strategy, the ambition? and communicate that um, clearly and, and be prepared to be flexible and, and, and to listen. I think, you know, Walter and, and Astrid already summarized very well, I concur. Thank you very much, Christopher. I would say, you know, based on my, my training in pharma, think backwards, uh, not forwards, but think backwards. You have a great idea, just because it's a great idea doesn't mean it's translatable, doesn't mean there is a need in the market. So think backwards and, and go all the way to the end and say, if this develops into a product, who is it going to serve? Who is going to uh, prescribe it? Who is going to pay uh, for it? Is there really a need? And what is this product going to look like? Because that will then tell you what your development plan needs to look like uh, in terms of phase three and then phase two and phase one and, and where you are. And we'll give you a good sense of how that product needs to develop from idea to market um, and in who it's going to serve. So before you go to investors, I think it's incumbent on you to go out and talk to people and, and get some feedback. And, you know, you get a lot of, lot of, you ask 12 people, you get 13 opinions, that's fine. But if you come to an investor with your story well analyzed and, and going from start to finish and, and where exactly you're going to reach, in terms of adding value, how that product's going to add value to the market and therefore to the investor, because no market, no return. 
uh, I think that that gives you some level of credibility with the investor. Thank you very much. Henriette, what is your advice when a scientist says my end goal is to go public? Uh, what should they think about? I think I would invite him first uh, uh, in one of our great workshops in regards of um, getting know-how in a process of an IPO. Uh, we do that together with um, international and national investment banks um, to, yeah, just to, to, to learn about the process and uh, what is it about, what are the, the main um, uh, success drivers and not success drivers. So I, I would do that. And uh, before that, I, I, we would do some um, individual talks. And I would ask Andreas uh, Grasoa if he could also have a chat with the respective uh, company. <laughs> Andreas, are you still there? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm there. What's, what's um, your advice to the entrepreneurs? <laughs> the, the advice to the entrepreneurs is uh, uh, you could surprise the investors with the know-how that every real transformative uh, technology or compound really changes the industry at least dies three times during development. If you want to look at how this happens, there's a book out there from Safi Bakal called Loon Shots, uh, published last year at Pretty Well, summarizes uh, uh, what happened, for example, to compounds like statins or, or other things. And uh, if you come up to those investors with uh, an approach how you and your company and especially your team is going to overcome those three deaths uh, that will occur to your technology and to, to those difficulties, uh, you're going to be well perceived and investors will like you. Thank you very much uh, to you all for your time. We are at the end of the uh, panel discussion. Uh, have a great time, stay safe, and we we'll see us next time. Thanks, Christian. Thank Thanks. you. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day.